Worship Christ, the risen King. And that's what we want to spend a few more minutes tonight considering that we began this morning. Jesus Christ is not often, today, remembered as a king. There's a couple of problems. We haven't seen a king in a long time, so we don't know what power is. We hardly even know what the word means in the Bible, because we are so far removed from being under a king. And then the devil doesn't want him as king. The devil does not want the conquering Lord Jesus Christ who controls his eternal destiny. Remember, Satan was the highest angel that God created that we know of. And he created man, and we are far inferior to angels. Now, how was God able to take a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and make him Satan's conqueror? That hurts the devil. Amen. And so the devil doesn't want the Lord Jesus Christ remembered as a conquering king. He wants him on a crucifix where the Catholics love to have him. He wants him in a manger where the Catholics love to place him. And we want him on his white horse as Revelation 19 describes him Amen. from the Bible. Let's take a few minutes and talk about Jesus being the king of kings. Now a king is very powerful over all his subjects. What is a king of kings? A king is very powerful over all kings. Right. And so there have been through history, the earth is only 6,000 years old. You know how you know that? Because you can read the Bible. Forget yeah. National Geographic. They were smoking something they shouldn't have. When they wrote that the earth is 30 billion years old and that your great-grandmother was a monkey. Mine wasn't. I've seen her picture. They don't know what they're talking about. Let's come to the Word of God and look at what the Bible has to say about kings. For 6,000 years, God has raised up kings, and they were the most powerful men that the earth had ever seen. Families trembled, wondering if the king's favor would bless their house or if the king's curse would cost them. If a king would take his nation to battle and cost the nation deeply. Many, many dangers in having a powerful king, but the Lord Jesus Christ is king over all. Right. You know, when the Bible says he's king of kings, that gets him up just about as high as earthly language can describe a monarch. How else would you say it? He's a great king? It says that. But it says he's king of kings. And you know there have been some kings in the earth's history that God raised up as high as he could get them. For what purpose? To show yeah. that Jesus Christ was greater. Yes. Mm-hmm. I want you to think of at least three. I'm going to cover several if we, have, if we take a few minutes. But I want you to think about Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to think about Pharaoh. And I want you to think about Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire. Pharaoh of the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians and Ahasuerus of the Persians. Of those kings, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest. Look at Ezekiel 26 and verse 7. Our God liked Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar on earth looked more like God than any other man that this earth has had apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was a king of kings. 
He is called God's servant over 50 times. My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Now that puts God up pretty high, doesn't he? When we take the greatest king that there ever was, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, and the Lord calls him my servant, who's going to do my work for me. That puts the Lord up very high. We just had the Olympics. The winner of the 100 meters in the Olympics is always called the world's fastest human. Why is he called the world's fastest human? Because the world gives all men four years to train for a 100-meter dash. They're all invited. They all get to come, and it's very fairly organized. Whoever wins that race must be the world's fastest human because there was four years for people to figure out a big race was coming to train for it and to be there. And how do you know it's the world's fastest? See, I like superlatives. Superlatives are those words that end in est, meaning the greatest of them all. And so the the man that wins the 100 meters at the Olympics is the world's fastest human because he's met all comers. Anyone. No one else can claim to be the fastest. The Lord is king of kings. So he raises up kings and then he dashes them down to show that he is the greatest. I want you to see about Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel 26 and verse 7. Here's one of many verses about him. Ezekiel 26, verse 7, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus, that's a city, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and with chariots and with horsemen and companies and much people. And then he goes on to describe what God was going to do to the great city port of Tyre, called Tyrus here. Nebuchadnezzar was a king of kings. Let's go over to Daniel chapter 2. It's the next book in your Old Testament. Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 2. And see what Daniel says about Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37. Here's our brother Daniel before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king of kings. And we know what the Lord did to him, don't we? Why don't we talk about what the Lord did to him? right now, even though it might be a little bit out of chronological order. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar said, I want this training program and this regimen for all the young men that are going to stand before me. A little Jewish captive boy named Daniel said, I won't do it. I don't eat those kind of meats, and I don't eat meats that have been offered to your idols. I won't do it. Give me the pitiful diet of a farmer, and let me eat lentils and water and we'll see who's healthier at the end of a few days. I hope that all of you understand that passage. There is no nutritional superiority in lentils and water. The whole point was that there was a miracle that took place in Daniel chapter 1, and so Daniel ate an inferior diet to prove that he could do better than those on a superior diet. It's amazing what people will do with the Bible when they don't really want to read it carefully. Amen. You know what Daniel did as soon as the ten days were over? I mean, as soon as his training period was over, what did Daniel eat? Do you think Daniel ate lentils and water the rest of his life? The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 10 what he ate. And he tells us what he liked. 
He liked dainty bread. Now, do you know what dainty bread is? Those are croissants, pastries, oh, coffee cake. Dang, it says it in Daniel chapter 10. Dainty bread, meat, and wine. Now, that's a diet. That's a diet. Not lemons and water. If you're going to believe the lentils and water stuff, then if you've got a vision problem, come and see me. If you, if you think you need glasses, because when you come and see me, I'm going to spit in the dirt, then I'm going to stir it up and make a little bit of mud, and I'm going to stick it in your eyeballs. Because that's what Jesus did to heal a blind man. Now, do you think there was healing power in spitting in the dust and making mud and putting it in the eyeballs? Or was the healing power in the Lord Jesus Christ who for the sake of the miracle thought he would think of the most ridiculous thing he could to show that the power was in him. Right. If you're going to put the power in the mud, we've got a problem understanding your Bible. Amen. Why am I getting off on that subject? I didn't mean to go there. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 1, Daniel was promoted right, out of, right up to the king without the king's regimen. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he had the greatest training program in the world for young men, Daniel chapter 1. But Daniel, a Hebrew eunuch, came right up to Nebuchadnezzar and was ten times smarter than all of his magicians and astrologers because God was with him. There was a king of kings over Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar thought he could institute a new religion. And we talked about that briefly this morning. I'll not waste time going there again. But he set up a golden image and three young men would not bow down to that golden image. And Nebuchadnezzar was converted, at least externally, by the king of kings, dousing fire where it did not even singe or put the smell of smoke on three men that would not bow down to that golden image. But the men who threw them on their way were consumed by the heat coming out of that blast furnace. There is a king in heaven. And you know, those three men knew they had a king in heaven, didn't they? They said, we are not careful, O king, in how we're about to answer you. We don't know if our God's going to deliver us from your fiery furnace or not, but whether he will or not, we are not going to bow down to your golden image. Now, God likes a testimony like that. And it tells us about Nebuchadnezzar's face. He hadn't been talked to like that in 30 years. It says his visage was changed. He was foaming mad, and he said, Heat that furnace seven times hotter than it's wont to be heated. And that's why it was so hot when the Chaldean soldiers, the mightiest men in his army, that's a horrible day, isn't it, for this king, the mightiest men in his army take up three Hebrew young men and throw them in the furnace, and they are burned alive right there on the spot. But those three men are saved. Amen. He's a great king, isn't he? Right. What did Daniel chapter 4 have to tell us? It's a piece of world history written by Nebuchadnezzar that God put him down on all fours as an animal for seven years. And he was put out to pasture until he lifted up his eyes at the end of seven years and he blessed and extolled and honored the king of heaven. He had just met a king that was his superior by a long shot. He's out there mooing while there's a God in heaven that created him. That's Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the history of the world. If you go and read a little bit about the city of Babylon, it will stagger you at the intelligent design and the invincibleness of that city. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, 
How long did it take to take the city of Babylon? How long was the siege? One night. And there wasn't a siege. But in one night, they took the whole city. Because the Persian engineers diverted the waters of the Euphrates. This is common history, but it's written in the Bible. We know the details in the Bible. Amen. The Persian engineers diverted the waters of the Euphrates River off into the swamps beside the river and marched their army through the riverbed into the impregnable city of Babylon and took it in one night while their foolish king was in there using the vessels of God from God's temple in Jerusalem to toast his gods. There is a king in heaven. And do you know what he likes to put down the most? Other kings. Because it shows how great he is. For the king of heaven to put me down, what does it prove? Not very much at all. But to put down a Nebuchadnezzar, what a display of his power. Do you know what he let Belshazzar do in front of his entire royal court that night when the arm came out in the walls? It tells us that his loins were loosed and his knees not. Do you need that interpreted for you? Have you ever seen a child that is so scared its loins are loosed? There's little muscles in your loins that keep your bladder closed off. Are you with me? And when the Lord looses loins, those things let go. And if you've been around a child when they're very, very scared, you can see it sometimes. And, and Belshazzar got to show his whole royal court that he had a problem that night. When that hand came out and wrote on the wall that his days were numbered and the kingdom had been taken from him. That isn't the only stained royal tunic that we have in the Bible. Because there's another king that found that same God when he was in a chariot down in the middle of the Red Sea. But before we talk about, that's Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar from the book of Daniel. Why, why is it in the Bible? Why do we need to know about Nebuchadnezzar, city of Babylon? Did you know that there's whole chapters written about the taking of the city of Babylon? About walking through the riverbed? The brass gates that were in the riverbed normally being opened, them coming in? It's Isaiah 44 and 45. God called Cyrus by name before the man was even born. Cyrus the Persian. Fantastic literature in the Bible. And you're to read that stuff and get excited that you have a king of kings, that's your Lord and your Savior, that when we pray, we're praying to the king of kings. He can do anything. Amen. You know, there's reasons why I'm preaching this message. Number one, that you will take comfort, comfort in your troubles that there is a God on your side that can do anything. That you will take consolation that your future is going to turn out well because God is going to work the victory. That you will take courage. Because what is there to be afraid of if that God is on your side? Remember those three men? Let me say it again. We are not careful to answer thee, O King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know if our God's going to save us from your fire or not, but we're not going to worship your golden image. Forget it. Where'd that courage come from? They knew the God of the Bible. And you parents that were with me the last few days, do you remember Psalm 78 where it said, We will tell our children for them to tell their children, for them to tell the generation to come, four generations, about the mighty works of God. Amen. That is why we want to teach our children the Bible. They will never be afraid. What's the cure for fear of the dark? There's a God in heaven, and the angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear Him. How did my mother help me when I was five and having nightmares? There's an angel in the room, Jonathan. Don't worry about anyone else. Look at this verse. Psalm 34, 7. We want to teach our children those things. Right. It can be comfort, courage, and consolation for their lives. 
There is no enemy greater than the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's able to accomplish. You need to believe that. Let's go to Romans chapter 9 and remind ourselves something about Pharaoh. Why did Pharaoh make it to the top of the Egyptian empire at a time when the Egyptian empire was the greatest empire in the world? When they were building their pyramids and they had the most formidable army on earth, why did Pharaoh, a particular Pharaoh, get to the pinnacle of power? The Bible tells us. Right. This is world history. You can go to Tech, Clemson, Furman, go anywhere you want. Go to Harvard, go to Columbia, go to the University of Chicago, go anywhere you want. You're not going to get real world history. This is real world history. Where did Pharaoh come from and why did he make it to the pinnacle of power in Egypt? Romans 9.17 tells us, For the Scripture saith, do you know what that means? That means it's in the Bible twice. It's in the Old Testament and Paul's quoting it. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Amen. Do you know why Pharaoh was great? Moses stood there in his face and told him that in Exodus You can go over there in the first 12 chapters of Exodus and read where Moses came in and told Pharaoh those words. The scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Moses gave God's word to Pharaoh. Do you know why you're on the pinnacle of power, Pharaoh? Because God has chosen you to be an example of what he's able to do to a king. That man hadn't been talked to like that either. What the Lord do to uh, Pharaoh. Let's think about it for a minute. Did, was Pharaoh fearful of the Israelites and how quickly they were multiplying? When you go read Exodus chapter 1 and 2, did he realize that this foreign group of people living within his nation, we got a couple of those, don't we? Sometimes their reproductive rates bother us too. But anyway, you know, I shouldn't have probably said that. But you all know what I meant. You know I meant it kindly. I'm just speaking very practically. The Egyptians were afraid of all those Israelites multiplying so rapidly. And so he gives a decree. All the children kill, all the boy babies kill. We'll get rid of all the ones that could be soldiers. So what does the Bible tell us happened? His own midwives betrayed him and lied to him, and the nation kept multiplying like rabbits. You try to go figure out how in 215 years, please, Sit down with a calculator. Figure out the human period of gestation and sit down with a calculator and how you can go from 75 people and in 215 years be 3 million. Right. Rabbits come in second. They multiplied incredibly fast. Remember, Remember the little chart that I tried to encourage you parents with? That if you have children and the Lord gives you health and strength and they marry and have children... You've got, this, you've got this little downline that the Lord's given you of children and grandchildren, and it's your duty and it's your privilege to teach each one of them. Well, those 75 that came down to Egypt had 3 million. That's a big family reunion. When they killed the Passover, there were some empty fields around with sheep missing. The nation multiplied. Here's a man that sits with his war council, and the government of Egypt and says they're multiplying too rapidly will get rid of them with this policy. He implements the policy. His own mid- the midwives lie to him 
and the nation multiplies faster. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Do you know how that would distress a, distress a man? And then what did God do to him? We have ten plagues. You know them all. I hope you know them all. You know, God sent frogs into the land. The frogs were everywhere, and they couldn't get rid of frogs. Why pick frogs? Why not nice little kittens? Why, why, why didn't God send kittens? Because frogs, he was ridiculing the king of Egypt. How far did the frogs get into Egypt? Were they in his bed? They were in his bed, the Bible tells us. Were they in his bread? And I'm not trying to rhyme because I'm not that good. But were they in his bread as well? They were in his bread. The Bible tells us they were in his kneading troughs. Now, some of you have had raisin bread. You have toast with a piece of bread, and there's a raisin in it. How about frog bread? And I, the God of heaven gets all the honor and the glory. He said, for this very purpose, if I raise thee up, that I might show in thee my power, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. When Moses came to that Pharaoh and said, let my people go, what did that Pharaoh say to Moses? Who is the Lord? Don't you feel sorry for Pharaoh? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's all I need to hear, and I know what's about to come on the morrow, don't you? When you hear words like that? Frogs. You think that I'm a little extreme with the Bible? Can I take you to an event? Can I take you to the writing in Scripture in Psalm 105? Would you please go to Psalm 105 and see if my brother David and your brother David thought the same way about the frogs? Psalm 105 and verse 30. This is David giving a brief history of Israel where 500 years after the event. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. There's, the, there's David talking about this great event of how God humiliated the greatest king on earth to get himself a name. You know, if you humiliate just a little farmer, you haven't got yourself a big name. You take the man with the largest name on earth, the greatest pride on earth, king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and then you humble him with those ten plagues. And you know the plagues. Let me run through them very quickly. Frogs, lice, flies. There's no kittens in here. Moraine, boils, hail. Locust, darkness, the death of the firstborn in every family, and then the closing up of the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his army. That is one horrible lesson that he worked in the land of Ham upon the Egyptians because he is king of kings. I am telling you the truth about the God of heaven because this is what the Bible declares about him. He raises up kings to show how great he is that when they defy him, he can put them down. When he raises up a king who humbles himself, he is able to use that king and expand his empire. Like Ahasuerus the Persian. He blessed Ahasuerus the Persian, and he was a nursing father to Israel in so many ways. Esther became his wife. You know, The Lord worked in that king in a very different way, in a kind way. He protected his life by Mordecai hearing a conspiracy to assassinate the king. And we have a whole book in the Bible written about Esther in the times of Ahasuerus. We have Ezra and Nehemiah that refer to the same king. He was a great blessing to the people of God. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. 
Those of you that have been to a zoo, do you like the lions? Do you like reading about the lion, hearing the lion? How far can the roar of the lion be heard in the African plains? Between five and eight miles. You know, Brother Red was talking about his voice a little while ago. I feel the same way. Go outside this room or go across the hallway and, I, and you can't hear me. But a lion, when he roars, can shake concrete foundations. It can be heard five to eight miles away. It's a beautiful thing. God knows there's beautiful things in the earth because He created them. And look at the ones He lists right here in Proverbs chapter 30 and beginning at verse 29. Proverbs 30, 29, There be three things which go well. Yea, four are comely in going. These four things look awesome. A lion which is strongest among beasts and turneth not away for any. The courage and strength of the lion is a glorious thing. A greyhound for its speed, and he goat also for its agility, and a king against whom there is no rising up. God thinks that a king who can take on all comers and no one can rise up against him without being put down is a beautiful thing. This isn't your pastor off on some tangent. This is the word of God. And who is truly the only king against whom there is no rising up? It is the Lord Himself. And He is beautiful. And I think He's comely in His going. And I strain in my heart, on my tiptoes, to see the vision of Him proceeding through the Word of God. Because I've got 4,000 years of history in the Bible that describes what He's done to the kings of the earth. And I love every one of them. You will never bore me by writing me an email and telling me something that you have found in your Bible about the greatness of the Lord we serve. That He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when I look through the history of the last 2,000 years, and I see Europe almost overrun by mongrel hordes from the east, and how that Europe was saved, I see God's hand in all of those events. I see God's hand in the election that's coming up in two months. Whoever we get in that election, I know that God has chosen to put that man there for this nation, for good or for evil, or for both, depending on what part of the nation you're talking about. He's able to do that, and He does do that. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and I sleep totally at peace at night. Amen. Pharaoh went down into the Red Sea, the man that said, Who is the Lord? Down in the Red Sea, God took the wheels off His chariot, and I've told you this many times before, why did God take the wheels off His chariot so that He was down in the middle of that Red Sea with water stacked up on both sides. Why could a man be so blind after nine plagues in Egypt? Why would he take his chariot down into that Red Sea with the water stacked up on both sides? Why did he think two plus two was going to equal five that day? What twisted his mind and shut it off from understanding? Because God expects our obedience. That king defied him And he blinded him. And brethren, if we meet up with the word of God and we put our own lives first before what the Lord has told us to do, if we make our lives more important than his worship, he will blind us and we are capable of anything. The wheels came off and it says he drove his chariot furiously. Do you think he was nervous? It says he drove his chariot furiously. Was he nervous? Then the water came in and suffocated him to death. 
and the next day there were waterlogged Egyptians floating on the sh- floating near the shore, and Israel danced on the shore of the Red Sea and gave praise to the great God of heaven. Exodus chapter 15 is a whole chapter of praise to God for drowning the Egyptians. That isn't preached anymore. You know, people talk about the Red Sea. They talk about the wind opening up the water, but they don't talk about what happened down in that water right. and what happened in the next chapter. They don't love the same Lord Jesus Christ that I love. Because I took you to Romans to show you that it was still the attitude of the New Testament writers that God raised Pharaoh up as high as he could so that he could dash him down to show how great he was because I'm going to magnify my name in the earth. And you know all the history books want to talk about Pharaoh. You go back and look at ancient civilization history books and they all want to talk about Pharaoh when the God of the Bible is the one that ought to be talked about. Amen. Because look at, look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. How did Pharaoh or any other king ever get to the throne? Daniel chapter 2, you want a verse on political history of the world? This will tell you how men get to the throne and how men leave the throne. Daniel 2, I'm going to begin at verse 20. Daniel answered and said to the Lord, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Where a man comes from and makes it to the throne, which was a very limited position. You know, we're not talking about one out of a thousand. We're talking about one out of many millions that would make it to the throne of a nation or of a kingdom. How did he get there? God put him there. And then when God was through using him, God took him down from there. You know, some of us this morning were talking about the USSR. You know, just a few years ago, we, we, we thought the USSR was a rather formidable foe. You know, in 1981, it just fell apart like dust. But those with eyes of faith were able to see a rod of iron held in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, dashing the nations in pieces. And now it's all in pieces. They can't even feed themselves. If we weren't supporting them, they'd starve. Formidable? God dashed them in pieces. Are Americans better than Russians? No. Are God-fearers better than God-haters? Absolutely. What makes the difference? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because by nature, we're God-haters. But we're certainly not going to apologize that the Lord is our God. We're going to say with Elijah, the Lord, and the people of Israel, the Lord, He is the God. The Lord is. He is the God. Look at Psalm 135 and verse 10. The Lord likes being considered in His position and power over kings. Psalm 135 and verse 10. This is the Lord of the Bible. This is the true Lord Jesus Christ. This is one worthy of your worship. How could you miss doing anything for this king? Why would you choose to do so? He's worthy of everything we can give him. Psalm 135 and verse 10. It says about him who smote great nations and slew mighty kings. Look at Psalm 136 and verse 16. Let's read verse 17. To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever. 
Notice that the psalmist is bringing out this character trait of our God that he smote great kings. Because that's the highest opponent that he could ever have on earth. Great nations and great kings. And he smote them and put them down because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Look at Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. Proverbs 21. Here's a verse for the coming election. For whoever we have in power. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Have you been in an airplane and looked down on a river or a stream? Do they go in a straight line from A to B? Or do they left, right, wind, back and forth, back and forth? As the rivers of water, the heart of a king, his motives, his fears, his loves, his hates, his ambitions, all of that is in the heart, is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it left, right, left, right, for the sake of his people under their dominion. And when he's done, he throws them away and raises up a new man. You say, that isn't fair. (laughs) They had the greatest opportunities, the greatest blessings and privileges of any man on earth, and they didn't give God the glory. I think it's better than fair. It was merciful that he gave them even one day in their position to enjoy the spoils of being a king. And they wouldn't give God the glory for it. Every time I see an athlete on television or anywhere... An athlete that has accomplished something great. He set a world record or something. He's done something very unusual. When they don't give God the glory, it it turns my stomach. Because for a man to set a world record, that means that all the humans that have come before him that have tried and strained to try to set that record could not do so. That means God arranged the gifts that that man has in his body and the circumstances of the athletic contest to achieve that world record. When they don't give God the glory, they will pay for it either now or later. They'll pay for it for not giving God the glory. We want to give God the glory. Who was the first king in the Bible? Nimrod was the first king in the Bible. What happened to that king? Was was the Lord king of kings with Nimrod? We're going to build a tower to heaven. You say, that sounds like a conspiracy. It was. The people of the earth got together and said, we're not going to obey the Lord. We're not going to spread ourselves abroad like God has said after the flood. We're going to build a tower. We're going to stay united. And we're going to be right here. We're going to have the United Nations in the plain of Shinar. And so they began to build their tower and to get themselves a name. They wanted to get themselves a name. You know, Americans think that the United States of America or USA or America is a great name. And we do have a blessed country, but we better not take pride in that or God will break it in pieces. And we are a proud nation. Those people in Genesis chapter 10 11 began building the Tower of Babel to get themselves a name. Does God like men getting themselves a name? No, He wants all the glory. And He deserves all the glory. So what did He do to them? He said, I'm going to go down and see what those men are doing down there. This is Genesis chapter 11, the first ten verses. And when he saw that they weren't keeping his commandments and wanted a name, he confounded their languages. All men on earth spoke one language in the plain of Shinar until the Lord got there. Then they all spoke different languages. And I could try to entertain you for a long time of what happens in a large construction project when men begin speaking different languages. You know, they could have been hoisting large granite blocks into place. Tons. 
way up there in the air to get it into position to put it into this tower. And they're trying to communicate between the men that are up there and the men that are on the ground controlling the ropes. You know, they got a thousand men pulling on ropes trying to hoist that thing in the air. And all of a sudden, God changes their languages. And what they thought was pull a little harder, they interpreted to be let go. And there's a lot of flat Chaldeans in the plain of Shinar. You know, a man says, give me a hammer. The guy says he wants a kiss. So the, the timid little slave comes over and kisses him on the cheek. What would that cause in a construction crew? When nobody understood anything that they were speaking, it says they left off the building, and so there's a half-finished tower in the land of Shinar for a long time. What was it a testimony to? The Lord is King of kings and Lord of lords. Nimrod was the king. It was the beginning of his kingdom, and the Lord dismantled it. And so there was a half-built tower that was unfinished in the middle of a construction project because God was king over Nimrod. Remember Keterleomer and the three kings that were confederate with him? They came out of the same land about a thousand years later. Keterleomer and three kings. Who defeated that king? Abraham and 318 trained servants. Now that is a humiliating defeat. When, it, when four kings that have just defeated five kings are defeated by Abraham with 318 household servants. That is humiliating because the Lord is King of kings Amen. and Lord of lords. And who was given the credit for that victory by Melchizedek when Abraham returned from the slaughter of the kings? The Lord God of Abraham, possessor of heaven and earth, Amen. is how Melchizedek referred to the great God, possessor of heaven and earth. Do you know how many stories there are in your Bible about kings? You know, if you go read the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, you're going to read about king after king after king that the Lord put down. Right. Do you know who Og, the king of Bashan, is? How big was his bedstead? The man was one of the last of the giants on that side of the Jordan River. Nine cubits. Right. That's 14 and a half feet. 13 and a half feet long, his bedstead. He was a giant man. But Israel took Og and the king of Bashan and his nation. How about Sihon, king of the Amorites? These men are spoken of in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and in the book of Psalms. Right. When you're reading through the Psalms and you see Sihon, king of the Amorites, that was a huge event in Israel's history because he had a huge nation, the Amorites, and God destroyed them. This is why we read the Bible, Amen. so that we can see God's great works for his people. If God was able to destroy great nations that were in the path of the Israelites, can he take care of your little problems Amen. or my little problems? Easily. And we want our children to fully believe that. So we tell them these stories. So we have sermons like today that I consider rather light. But the consequences are not light. Amen. The consequences are, do I serve him as a king of kings and a lord of lords? That's a weighty consideration. And I hope that we do. Could God control a king when he was in bed? Did a king ever take Abraham's wife, not knowing that she was his wife? Was that man potent or impotent that night? The Bible says, I didn't let you touch her. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And though Abimelech had Abraham's wife in his house with him, he couldn't touch her. 
the Lord is king over all kings, even in little matters like that or in great battles. Turn to Judges chapter 1. I don't have time. the 40 examples of kings that I've got for you, but I can, I've given you a couple. Do you know about Herod Agrippa the first? Herod Agrippa, Acts chapter 12, what apostle did he kill? He killed James. Then he gave a speech, and the people said, this is the, this is the speech of a God, not a man. And he didn't give God the glory in what happened to him. Worms ate him. Go home and punch in Herod Agrippa I and see how he died. I mean, when I say punch in, I mean go home, Google search on the Internet. Find out what they want to say, the world wants to say about the pleasant death of that Herod. The Bible tells me he was eaten of worms. He died from a horrible disease from the inside out in a couple of days. On the spot would have been too fast, brethren. Please understand. All right. Because he didn't give God the glory. That's in the that's in the New Testament, Acts chapter twelve. Jesus Christ is King of Kings. Amen. When a man has been allowed the privilege of being a king, he ought to give God the glory for having the most advantages of any man in his whole realm. That's why he's king. He ought to give God the glory. And when a man is unthankful in that position of great blessing, the Lord holds him accountable for that. And when he didn't give God the glory for his people treating him like a god, the Lord took him down right then. That's Acts chapter 12. Look at here in Judges chapter 1. I remember as a boy reading this chapter, and I kind of like the little story here. We've got a king named Adonai Bezek. Bezek was his hometown, his city, where his kingdom was located, and his name was Adonai. So he's known as Adonai Bezek. Now, when, he, when Adonai Bezek would defeat another king in battle, he'd bring him home because he wanted pets around his table. While he was eating, he wanted kings crawling around so that he could have some, some reverence by, by an interesting dinner table. So he would cut off their big toes and cut off their thumbs. And you know, without your big toe, it's pretty hard to walk. You know, that big toe that's out there helps you get your balance. So he'd cut off their big toes, cut off their thumbs, and they'd be crawling under his table, getting scraps from Adonai Bezek. What'd you say? Seventy times. He had seventy kings crawling around like that? Let's read this. Verse 5 of Judges chapter 1, And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And here's what this man had to confess to the Lord of heaven. This is why I wanted the passage for you. I like his words. And Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. That's king of kings. When you get a king that's defeated seventy kings... And he's so great that he can have them crawling around under his table. But then the Lord cuts off his big toes and his thumbs. And he says, I've got what I deserve. The Lord's repaid me in kind for what I've done to others. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter... Revelation chapter 17. I've got to bring this to a close. Revelation chapter 17. I want you to know that even in the history of modern Europe, the Lord has been in charge of the nations there since the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Revelation chapter 17. Now, we've got a situation being described here in prophecy. We don't have time to go into much detail. I can show you, though, in verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. When John's writing in 70 A.D., what city was reigning over the kings of the earth in 70 A.D.? Rome. We're talking about Roman history. Let's back up to the previous verse. Let's get verse 16. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdoms unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. There is a 1260 year time period of history here. God had promised the Roman Catholic Church would persecute the saints of God for 1260 years. Now how did that happen? Popes didn't actually kill people. Popes had the civil authority kill people. And for 1260 years, the ten nations of Europe gave their kingdoms to the popes. They would be crowned by the popes. The popes could tell them to do something to exterminate a town, exterminate a sect, and they would do it for them. And God said he had put in the hearts of kings to give up their kingly authority and give it to Rome until the word of God be fulfilled. And then they came and took the power away from Rome, and Rome has been impotent for the last 200 years. But I want you to notice something. What it says in verse 17, God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. How do you get a king to give away his kingdom and to do it for a long period of time? Until the words of God shall be fulfilled because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Look at Isaiah 49:23. Isaiah, back to the Old Testament, but it's talking about the New Testament times. Isaiah 49. When Paul went to Rome, what did he do for two years? Did he live in? Did he rent an apartment? Could anybody come and hear him preach any time? How did that happen? Is that how Romans treated prisoners? I thought they were feeding Christians to lions and stuff like that. Did he eventually get his head cut off? Yes. But how did he have a couple of years in his own hired house, no one forbidding anyone coming to hear him preach? Sounds like he was being taken care of the Roman Empire. Isaiah 49, verse 23. This is a verse that I refer to sometimes. I want you to know where the verses, where the words come from. Isaiah 49, 23, a prophecy of how God will use kings. And kings, are you, are you there? And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. What is that verse teaching? That verse is teaching God will use kings and queens to take care of his people. Ahasuerus, Darius. Who paid for the reconstruction of Jerusalem, the building of the temple? Was it the revenue on the other side of the river? 
Did the Persian king say, go ahead and take the taxes that are collected on that side of the river and use it to build Jerusalem? Incredible. Why would a king ever do that to a group of people that the other nations are saying, these have been rebellious people. They are a threat to your kingdom. Pay for it. I want you to collect the taxes and don't you dare mess with them. You collect the taxes and give them the money and you build that city of Jerusalem. That's in the Old Testament. There's Paul with his, with his house. We have an IRS code that still blesses ministers of the gospel. And would you, would you help me right now? This Bible that I'm using and the Bible that you're using, who said they wanted this Bible to come into existence? King James I of England in 1604 said, I want the word of God settled in our nation so that there are not these conflicting versions. Kings and queens shall be your nursing fathers and nursing mothers. We still call it the King James Version to this day, almost 400 years later. You know, in just seven years, brethren, we're going to have the 400-year anniversary of the Bible that we use in the English language that a king said, I want a Bible. Kings and queens will be your nursing fathers and mothers. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming soon for us. He sits at the right hand of God on a throne that we saw this morning in Hebrews 4.16 is a throne of grace. He's got all power, but He's got all grace. You can go to Him at any time. And how does He tell you to come? Boldly. Boldly. Even though He's got such great power, we don't have to go in trembling and fear. We go reverently. And with godly fear, but not in servile fear. And we can go boldly, and He hears your prayers. Because it's a throne of grace where you can obtain help in time of need. That is the King that you have. That is your Savior, and that is your Lord. And He's coming again soon. And when the Bible tells us when He comes, He's bringing some creatures with Him. They're called His mighty angels. And He's coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is Second Thessalonians chapter 1. That is the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I'm giving you a sober warning from the word of God. But the very same passage says that for people like you and me who have believed the gospel and we've tried to obey it, though imperfectly, when he comes, we will all be admiring him because we are going to see a monarch, the likes of which we have never seen before. And he is going to treat us as brothers, children, and friends. Unbelievable. Amen. That is the future. And the future is soon. Jesus Christ is coming soon. There is no prophetic timetable for us to be waiting for a thousand years to be fulfilled. Jesus is coming soon. He is our brother, our friend, our priest, our king. And he will accept us as his children and brethren. And we will admire him. Second Thessalonians 1. Because we have believed the gospel and we're looking forward to him. And the Bible says that the blessed God will reward all those that love his appearing. And I hope you love his appearing and are waiting for it. May Jesus Christ bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.